Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you today. A beautiful weekend. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's one of the last warm weekends. Who knows? But uh, we're going to experience this together. And in a similar way, we also just experience this amazing thing with the child dedication. Now, we do this as a family together because it helps remind us that we have this, this generational obligation God actually calls us to pass our faith on to the next generation. And, and a lot of times that sounds really overwhelming and sometimes it really feels overwhelming, which is why we do this together as a family here because let nobody be mistaken, we are all in this together. Okay, and so the commitments that you've made, the commitments that, that the families have made to their children and us to the families all put us together in a way that we hope will strengthen the resolve of parents to raise children in a Christ-centered home, but also for us to be able to come alongside one another and, and, and help along the way. So thank you for being willing uh, to commit to that and to do, doing that. And uh, I just, I would like to tell you from a generational perspective that it, thinking about this whole child dedica dedication piece brought me into remembrance of something generational that has occurred in my family. I, I have a long line of people in my family that, uh, that were pastors, <coughs> ministers, all of this kind of th stuff. And of course, um, when I found out that I may have a call to ministry. I tried to abandon that as quickly as I possibly could and run absolutely the opposite direction. Uh, but one of the unique things about my family, at least on my mom's side of the family, is my grandfather, he was the one who really spoke to me, really answered my questions, really invested in me, re really helped me come into a, an understanding of, of who God is and, and what is God like and uh, understanding God's character and, and his integrity and all of these things. But he also, because he was a minister, he, well, he married or participated or officiated at all of the weddings on that side of the family for all the people that were alive and still are alive today. And so then he died in 2003. And, and when he died, it was kind of like, well, is, is, that, is that the end? Is that the end of this kind of tradition where we've got a family member officiating or, and participating uh, in the marriages of people coming before? And, and you know, again, because I had spent a lot of time running away from ministry, uh, I had taken myself off of that list. But God has an interesting way of working, doesn't he? And so six weeks ago, I stepped in and I officiated a wedding because there hasn't been anybody that's gotten married since my grandfather died in 2003 until now. And so now I've sort of taken over that part of the, of the family tradition, if you will. And maybe you don't have anything quite like that experience, but I bet you have something in your life where someone you know and love has passed away, and then there is a piece of that person. Maybe, maybe it was a sports team that they rooted for. Maybe it was something that they always used to say, a phrase they always used to say, or something that they did, or, or an annual trip that they took, or a place they really enjoyed, or whatever it might be. I bet you can think of, of, a, of an example of how people continue to do and say those kinds of things as a way of remembering the person who has passed away. In, in, a, in a sense, it's like 
that person's memory sort of lives on in us continuing and forwarding the things that maybe started or were passed along from that person before us. And all that's great and wonderful, and every, but it has limits. It's, it has limits. All we're really doing in those times is just putting ourselves in remembrance of this person that came before us. But is that the same way when it comes to matters of faith? Is that what ultimately the, the Christian religion is all about? Is it just about remembering Jesus and, and, and kind of putting ourselves into remembrance as we try to do the things that he said or try to, to do the things that, that he did? Are, are we just using him as our example to say, yes, I'm a Christian because I try to model myself after Jesus. And, you know, we just got done singing a song, Lord, make me more like Jesus. Make me more like Jesus. What does that actually mean? Does it mean what I just talked about, about continuing on a tradition? Do we just continue to, to pass it on from generation to generation as a means of remembering Jesus? And that's how we kind of keep him alive? Well, no, there's much more to it than that. Jesus doesn't have the limits that we have. God is not limited by our limitations. It, there is much more to the story. But we've got to first understand that God is not absent. God is not somewhere else. God is with us. He has promised to be with us. And we live in a world that likes to try to get us to imagine that that's not the case. Whether it's the uh, Bette Midler, if you don't know who that is, maybe you should be thankful. I don't know. <laughs> but Bette Midler, 1990, you guys remember this song, right? Uh, it kind of sums it all up. God is watching us. God is watching us. It comes up to your part here. God is watching us from a distance. Well, wait a minute. That doesn't sound right. What do you mean God is watching us from a distance? And then we've got, you know, probably the most successful, quote unquote, Christian marketing campaign of all time. I mean, they've sold all kinds of bookmarks and T-shirts and bumper stickers and everything. And, and it's this little phrase. Remember, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Except, what's the problem? The question itself assumes that Jesus is not present, right? What would Jesus do just drives us into this idea of, well, he's just an example of this historical person that lived a long time ago. And we just try to, you know, sort of do what he did and say what he said as a means of following that example. But here's the deal. Jesus is not distant because Jesus is not dead. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. He is active. He is present. He is with us. And he is with us all the time, no matter what we might be facing, no, what, no matter what struggles we might be encountering. And in the context of what we're talking about, we're, we've made our way through the Gospel of John up now to John chapter 14. 
And when we talked about how this, this is a shift where Jesus has finished his public ministry and is now spending all of this time with just this smaller group of people. He's, he's passing this faith on to these disciples who don't really know what they're in for. They don't know what's coming. Jesus knows what's coming. He's tried to explain it to them, but they can't quite wrap their mind around it. And so it's in this context of this, this, this troubled hearts, the, 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 it's in the context of these troubled hearts of the disciples, because they hear Jesus saying, I am leaving. And they don't want to hear that at all. They've given up everything to follow him. And now he says he's leaving? What do you mean you're leaving? And so Jesus, at the beginning of John chapter 14, is, has started to help us see that, yes, he is leaving in a sense. But in a way, he's just starting things up because he's not going away without sending someone in his place. He's sending, he says, another advocate, another helper, another like him. And we're going to get into what exactly that means. But the very first thing we have to remember is that Jesus is not distant. It's not like, well, he said he was going, then he went, and now he's gone. That's not the promise. The promise is that he will not leave us orphaned. He will not abandon us. In fact, he will come again to us, and he has. That's what we're going to talk about today, because there's this unique way that God shows, proves, and seals his love for us. Now, it might start to sound a little bit heady, and it might start to sound a little uh, overly theological, and, and we're going to try to avoid that as much as possible. But the reality is that just like Rick Matson helped us understand last week, when we, when we talk about this, this one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is a divine mystery that you and I will never be able to fully comprehend. We'll never be able to fully, you know, wrap our arms all the way around that and understand exactly what that means. And that's okay. That's okay. Because if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you trust him and you know him, we have all eternity to be with him and have him teach us and help us to understand more about who he is. Okay, so we don't have to have all the answers right here in this particular place, but we do have to remember not so much the details about the, the what and the where, but we have to remember the who. We've got to remember the who. And so if we just skip back to uh, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago at the beginning of John chapter 14, this is when the disciples are, are confused. They don't understand what's happening. And in verse five, Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And so we have to first start with knowing that the way is through Jesus. That's the only way. And when we begin with that, then we start to understand a little bit more about what we're going to read in our scripture today. And before, before we dive into this, I just want to take a moment. Would you just pray with me as we ask the Lord to be here 
not just present, because we know he's present, but to actively work on our hearts to reveal the truth about who he is and who we are in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, for your grace. We thank you for these families who have committed to raising their children to know you and to love you. And Lord, we, we now ask in these moments that we have together that it not, not be my word, but it be your word that is preached in here. That whoever has ears to hear will hear the words that you have for each and every one of us, that you will work in our hearts, that you will do what only you can do to raise dead sinners, to give us new life in you. Lord, we thank you for who you are. And we praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so John chapter 14, we've now made it to verse 15. We're going to look at verses 15 to 24. And like I said, we can't answer all of our questions here, but Rick helped start us talking about this last week. We're going to spend some time uh, on this today, and then we're also going to be talking about it uh, as we finish up John chapter 14 uh, next week. And so I'm just going to read this all the way through, and then we're going to go back. And I want you to be listening as we do this for some key words, key phrases, key themes all throughout this section of scripture. If you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. Now, one of the themes that's running through this if you didn't hear it, and honestly, when I hear these verses, sometimes I get a little bit jumpy. Because if you've spent any time with us uh, or know anything about the Gospel of John, there's a, a, a theme running all the way through it about God's abundant grace. Grace upon grace. Matter of fact, that's all the way back in the first chapter of John. Grace upon grace. And yet, when we read this, it sounds like there's a bunch of conditions. It sounds like there's a bunch of fine print. It sounds like there's, well, wait a minute. This, this all of a sudden sounds too good to be true. You're talking about a God who loves me, who comes for me, who sends his son for me. And, and then now I hear a lot of if-then statements. Well, if this, then that. And it, it rips us up. It tears us up. And we end up putting things out of the right order because we misunderstand what Jesus is actually saying. And so I want to take some time 
so that we can understand how to think about this in the way that Jesus wants us to think about it. But it's understanding, or it's understandable for us to say like, well, wait a minute, it all does sound very conditional. Let's, let's go through it, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands. In the first part of verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Okay, And then the first part of verse 23, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Now, it's easy for us to just fall in the ditch right there and, and, and to say, aha, uh, after all of this, after all of this talk about God's grace, now it really turns out in the end, it's about me. If I don't do this, if I don't do that, if I don't measure up, then God will not love me. God will not favor me. But I encourage us to spend a little bit of time here thinking about what the next part of verse 21 is. I skipped that just so that we can go back and look at this. The second part of verse 21 is the key for us to understand all of the rest of this. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Do you see that? You see the currency here is not us doing something in order to earn God's favor. The currency here is love. Love is the basis of the relationship that we have with God. The love that Jesus has for us, the love that we have for Jesus. That is what the father is responding to in this case. Not our performance, but he's extending that grace and mercy to us based on who he is. He loves us. But how? How does he love us? That's what we're going to look at. But if we don't get this part straightened out, that God is working in and through us, that God is active and present, and we just end up thinking that it's all about WWJD and not realizing that we've got to be asking, well, what is God doing now? Well, then we miss the entire point of this, and we end up falling back in on ourselves and trying to keep a scorecard of the good things that we think we're doing. And let's be honest, we even like better if we can have the scorecard and keep track of how well we think other people are doing, right? That's a lot more fun. But the truth is that when it comes to obedience, because don't also hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that obedience is not important, but we have to understand what the Lord is talking about in terms of how do we obey? How do we obey? And so we can say it this way. Obedience is only possible through Jesus not a means to get to Jesus. This is critically important that we understand this. Obedience is not a way for us to get to Jesus. Obedience is something that happens through our relationship with a living Jesus who has done exactly what he promised. He has come to us. We'll talk about how that is, but that's true. And obedience is possible through Jesus. Well, what is he actually commanding us? What, what, what is he demanding us to be able to do here? And, and can we even do it? 
Do we have any chance? Do we have any hope? Well, look at uh, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. This is, again, is part of this long conversation Jesus is having with his disciples. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And I think it's fair for us at this point to summarize what we've learned throughout the gospel of John. Not just about God's grace, not just about God's mercy, but also about God's desire for our obedience. And and it, it really boils down to two main commands. Believe and love. Believe and love. But the order is important. We can't flip it around the other way. Because the essence of what Jesus is telling us is that obedience is a consequence of the faith that we have. It is a result of the belief that we have in him. And then he sends us the spirit of God who works in us and through us so that we extend God's grace to others around us. How do we do that? By loving them. We can't obey without first believing. But when we believe, then the consequence of the faith that we have in Jesus, the result of that is that we will obey. How? By loving one another, loving one another. And now if we don't get that, then we end up thinking, well, it really ends with me and my ability to conjure up enough willpower and to try to force this and to try to make it happen. And this is not what's happening at all. Look at verse 16. I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. Now notice there's some very interesting language here for two specific words here. First is another. Jesus says he's going to send another advocate, another advocate. Now in this particular case, the Greek word for another means one who is exactly like One who is exactly like. So Jesus is saying, I I will send another that will be and do for you what I have been doing for you. Another advocate, another helper. And the second word is, is this, well, some translations say advocate, like we saw here. Your translation might say comforter. Your translation might say helper. There may be other words as well that are used because the truth is that The Greek language encompasses way more of our English words into one word than we can really grasp. And so it means all those things. It means advocate. It means helper. It means comforter. Yes, Jesus is saying, I will send another one like me, but the Father will send an advocate to you 
won't be just like Jesus, won't be contained in the, in the flesh and blood of the incarnate Jesus, the, the word made flesh, but it is the spirit of God who now is no longer localized to just one particular person in one particular place at one particular time. This spirit of God, this spirit of truth is what is given to you and to me when we believe and we trust in Jesus. We are given the spirit of God who is always present in us and is always working working on us and is always working through us. So when we believe, then we love one another. So it's not a matter of our strength, of our willpower, of us getting it right. You can scour all the way through and flip through the pages of the Gospel of John and you can, you can try your best to come up with a list of moral conditions of, well, I gotta do this and I gotta do that and I gotta do this and I gotta do that. But you'll find that it's really hard to do because John wrote it that way. It's ambiguous. Love is a very big word. And it depends in this way, it depends on the active living presence of God working in and through us in order to deliver that. Starting first and foremost with us proclaiming and preaching to the world around us the good news that this has happened. Because we just read that the world can't see the spirit of God. And so how are we called in to make the spirit present in the lives of of the world that God loves so much. So it's not a question about, well, what, what would Jesus do? As if he's somehow uninvolved. The question is really, well, what is Jesus doing? How is Jesus active and present in our lives right here, right now, in the, in, in the circumstances that we find ourselves in? And he's accomplished this by sending his one and only son, Jesus, to take our sin all of our shortcomings, all of the ways that we don't measure up, to take that upon himself where it was nailed to the cross and put to death forever, forever separating us from the burden and the consequence of sin. Instead, he invites us into a new life with him. He was raised from the dead and now he asks you, will you believe? Will you follow? And if we do, when we do, then we will find that we finally become useful for God's purposes in the world. We become instruments, ambassadors of his grace and his mercy as God continues to draw people to himself. And so obedience is not ultimately rooted in the doing. It's rooted in delighting. It's not rooted in doing, but in delighting. When we know and trust and believe Jesus, when we delight in him, when we approach him with the awe and wonder of, I honestly am so amazed at what you have done for me and how I didn't deserve it. And yet you, you came and did it anyway. When we live our lives in the light of that awe and wonder and appreciation and, and, and gratefulness for who God is and what he's done for us, then the Spirit of God comes alongside us. That's what that Greek word means. It's translated all those different ways. It just simply means one who comes alongside another. And so the Spirit of God comes alongside of us. But, but Jesus says it's even better than that. Not just alongside us, 
but living in us. So we never have to wonder about, well, where is God present? Where is, he's present in you and in me when we believe and we trust in him. But a lot of times when we're dealing with that, we might have the tendency to turn inward. Maybe we don't delight in God. We don't delight in the truth about who he is and what he's done for us. But instead, when we face struggle and we face hardship, which all of us do at various points in our life, when we face the tough times, there's a competition for what we delight in, isn't there? Is it that we're delighting in God and the truth of his promise in the face of whatever our circumstances are, or do we turn to something else? Do we, do we turn to alcohol or drugs or, or, or sex or sports or video games or wh whatever? The list goes on and on and on and on, right? And do we delight in those things, thinking that they will provide comfort to us? Or do we delight in God? Do we delight in the relationship that we have with him? This is exactly what Paul was writing when he uh, wrote to the, the Romans, the letter to the Romans. And this, he says it in a lot of different places, but I want to just look at Romans 6 for a moment. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are no longer under the law, but under grace. Now, how are we doing at that at present? Because the reality of it is, in order to understand what is important to God here, in order to understand what he's telling us about his grace and about his mercy, we've got to conclude that what he means is that we are finally freed in him to love other people, to love one another. That's what we should be known for. If you are a Christian, then they're supposed to know us by our love. And how are we doing at that at present? Because there are an awful lot of folks that adorn themselves with the name of Jesus. They might make signs, they might have quotes, they might memorize scripture. And yet at the very same time, when it comes to obeying the commands of Jesus, which is love one another, are we really loving one another? Because if somehow out of all of this, out of this relationship with Jesus, you conclude that it's possible for you to love God and hate other people, then something has gone catastrophically wrong. 
Matter of fact, the writer who wrote the Gospel of John also wrote uh, a few small letters toward the end of the New Testament. And in the first letter he wrote, he actually says in chapter 4, verse 20, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, who they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. It's not possible. It's not possible for us to love God and hate one another. The outpouring of our faith comes in the form of love. Paul says it in, in the Galatians as well. The only thing that counts, not you keeping a list of all of the good things you've done, the only thing that counts is faith active in love. Faith active in love. Faith from believing that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has done what he says he did. He came to the disciples just like he said he would after he was resurrected from the dead. He spent some time with them. Then he went to the father and he sent the advocate. He sent the helper. No longer was it localized. And that's how you and I, as Rick talk, talked about last week, that's how you and I are able to do greater things than Jesus himself. Not in terms of the majesty associated with it, but in terms of the quantity you and I become multiplication factors for Jesus, for the gospel message. And so what would it be like if instead of hating the people that we disagree with, what would it be like if we actually recognized that we indeed are unified by the same very God who came for them that came for us? And what if we loved and cared enough about people, that, especially ones we disagree with, to actually invite them into a relationship with this loving God who's loved us enough that he has sent the spirit to work in and through us to bring more people to himself. What if we did that? Because let's be honest, it's, it's not going to be the case that we don't have disagreements. We, we're going to have disagreements. We don't have to agree on everything. But if we are united in Christ and that's the spot where we start that's what we recognize. We start with belief in Jesus, the unity we find in him, and then we work from there in loving one another. Well, that's what I believe Jesus is saying. It's not a conditional statement. If you love me, keep my commands. That sounds very conditional, but really it's a promise. If you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And so the world around us, as Jesus says here, can't, can't see or experience the Holy Spirit. That is a special, personal gift, deeply personal. And it's a reflection of God's love for us. It's a demonstration of God's love for us. It's the seal of God's love for us. It's a down payment for what we will expect for all eternity, but we, we hold it to be true in faith right now in relationship with God who has come to live in us and work through us. How are we radiating that in the world? Because our actions are what the world sees. Our actions are what they conclude. And if you want to know why, in, in record numbers, people are saying, 
Not for me, thank you very much. If you want to know why younger people are, are turning their backs on their faith, if you want to know why maybe they stood in, in a place like this and they were dedicated as a child and then they say, you know what, this is not for me. Why is it? It's because the actions that we continue to have contradict exactly what we're talking about here. If we love Jesus, then we will love one another. In a world that is so desperately full of division. Isn't that the message we need? Isn't that the message we need to bring people together? Is God loves you. He came for you. He died for you to forgive you and free you. So no longer do you have to try to figure your life out by yourself. Instead, God loves you enough that he has sent another advocate, another helper, not somewhere out there, but in you when you believe and trust. He's in you. The presence of God is in you. What would be different then? Because if we want to know how, well, how do we see that God is present and faithful and, and, and active? Well, we see Jesus being present and active in the world when we believe and when we love one another. That's it when we believe that he is who he says he is, then that faith is what is active in and through us to love others. How does God love us? Well, he loves us in amazing ways. But one of the biggest and most important ways that he loves us is that he did exactly what Jesus asked. He sent the advocate to come alongside us, to illuminate the truth, to grow the relationship that we have with God, to reestablish what was lost through sin and death, and so that we can be drawn into the, to the inner life of God. We don't have to understand it in order to participate in it. And you and I get invited into that by the power and presence of God's Holy Spirit. That's amazing. Jesus. Well, he's alive. He's alive and he's on the loose in the world. Are you and I part of that mission? Are you and I part of that mission? We can't do it through our own strength, through our own willpower, through our own attempts at making a list and checking it twice. That's not Jesus, by the way. That's Santa. Uh, this is completely different. God is present. He is active. He is in you when you believe. And his faith does amazing things because the consequence of it is that we bring people together, not drive people apart. How easy it is for us to get that flipped upside down. And so I just, I pray that if this is the first time you've heard about who Jesus is, that after the service, don't leave, but instead head over to our care station. Somebody would love to pray with you, answer your questions and talk to you about, well, what does this faith really mean? But for those of us that, that have been Christians for a long time, is it time for us to reevaluate what that actually means? Do we really believe? Do we really trust? And are we really loving one another? Do our lives reflect the love of God and how we love others?
believe and love. Believe in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've been able to be together. We thank you that you have not left us orphaned. In fact, you have made good on all of your promises and that you hold us and you keep us and you unite us. Lord, what an amazingly diverse creation you have made. All of these different people. And yet, you have created all of us. You've rescued us through your son, Jesus. And now you sustain us through your Holy Spirit who lives in us and works through us. We, we are amazed. We stand in awe and we surrender our lives to you so that we might be used as instruments of your grace and mercy, of your righteousness. Lord, send us to the people that you want to reach and give us the courage to tell the truth, the truth who is you. You are the way, you are the life. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.